Six, five, four, three, two, and one. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and joining us today, folks, we've got the CEO and co-founder of TideRise.io. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Seth Stover. Seth, my man, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Good to be here. Of course, of course. Well, you know, we're all in the business of transforming lives, making an impact. And I think you have particularly a very interesting story, an interesting kind of trajectory of how you fell into the impact arena, Seth. Would you mind sharing with the audience the origin story of Tide Rise and how this project came to be? Sure, would love to. <clears throat> so. The origin story has to start with uh, the last company that I was involved in building. So we'll start there and uh, that will lead us into the beginnings of Tiderise. Uh, so the company that I uh, helped build for better part of a decade was Flip, F-L-I-P-P. Some listeners may use the app. Uh, it's a weekly shopping app. Uh, I joined Flip in 2009. Uh, with the four founders, and I was the second hire. And uh, we went from six of us to about 550 of us in eight years. Um, negative revenue, first year I was there, to uh, about 100 million a year in revenue. And uh, incredible experience for me. Um, very, very thankful for it. My role was for seven of the eight years was head of sales and head of business development. And big part of my development uh, as a person, uh, as a business person, as a leader came from those eight years. Um, I left Flip in 2017. Uh, not because I had some grand plan to do something special and impactful, <laughs> uh, but more because uh, with that kind of growth and uh, the demands on my role, uh, the, the, the demands of the role started to actually outgrow my own development, which was a very interesting learning process to go through. That could be a podcast in and of itself. Um, but uh, it really, really burnt me to the ground. Um, and I needed to, for the sake of myself and also my family, make a change. Uh, one of the triggers that, that, that um, started that change was my two-year-old at that point, uh, out grocery shopping with my wife, looks up to the sky to see an airplane and says, look, mommy, that's where daddy lives. And that was the beginning of, hey, maybe we need uh, a, a change here. So um, in 2017, left Flip, uh, decided to move as a family across the West Coast of Canada and uh, took the better part of a year off. And in that time, uh, along with getting my head right and uh, thinking about what to do next, I kept in very close contact with my uh, boss at Flip, who is the CEO. His name is Weehunts. Um, we were friends when we worked together, but we uh, became even better friends after I'd left. And in one of our catch-up calls, Weehunts just reminded me of what he called the Malawi Project. And this was a little project that he had started while I was still at Flip. 
And I'll give you the background of that. And then we'll come back to the, the phone call, the catch up phone call. Uh, in 2016, Weehunts was in Malawi visiting his friends. He was there with his wife and, uh, and children and visiting his friends who run an orphanage in southern Malawi. Orphanage is called Iris Africa. And this next part that I'm going to share is a very key and critical part of our story. And I think just for leaders in general, um, but Weehunts asked his friend Mo, who runs the orphanage, uh, a very important question. He said, what are your big challenges? As an orphanage in the third poorest country in the world, what are your big challenges? Uh, he also said, how else can we help besides just giving money? And so that's the first part I want to identify is, as the years have gone on, I like to go back to say, he asked the question. Uh, he took the opportunity, he saw the, the opportunity to help, and he asked the question. And the next critical part is Mo answered the question, honestly. He could have said, uh, no, you know, we had to just keep giving money. You know, we're good. We got it. Just keep giving money. And uh, his answer was very honest. He said, well, look, if you're asking about my challenges, we're an orphanage. What, what are we here to do? We're here to raise orphans and prepare them for their lives in all different facets of their lives and prepare them to go out on their own. And he said, it's one of the most disheartening things to watch majority of these orphans when they age out, walk back into generational poverty. And this is a very real thing that happens in many of the poorest countries in the world is they walk back into gener generational poverty and reason being the lack of opportunity. And so at this point, we hunts, uh, you know, serial entrepreneur, very uh, smart business person. Uh, he starts thinking about, okay, how can we help solve this? And at that point, we had 500 people in our Toronto office. And we outsourced to approximately 500 people between India and the Philippines. And so his thought was, what if we carve a small piece of what we're currently outsourcing? Let's bring it to an empty building that's on the grounds of the orphanage. And let's do a bit of a test to hire some of the aged out young adults who are in the villages now. And let's train them on some of this flip work. And let's see what the quality can look like. Let's see what the unit economics look like. And let's see if these people can make a sustainable living that could provide them a platform for transformation in their lives. And so that little project went from training five people to do outsourcing work for Flip. Specifically, it was tagging retail circulars for the shopping app to approximately 90 in the span of about a year. And back to the catch-up phone call Weehunts and I were having, uh, essentially, Weehunts we in, in, um, in the effort to try to figure out a way to scale this said, what are your thoughts, Seth, on building a company around this concept and scaling it? And I was hooked immediately the thought of being able to build a business which i love doing whose sole purpose was to be a platform be a foundation for people to be able to step up and out of generational poverty was fascinating to me uh, i have no experience 
in developing countries. I have no experience in global development. I have no experience in anything like that, outsourcing BPO. But just that thought of leveraging a business as the primary leverage point for impact was really, really interesting for me. So that was the beginning. I think your question, sorry, that was pretty long, but I think your question was the origins. That's the origins. I love that. And, and I noticed that the three things your former CEO asked himself were, could we provide quality service? Did the unit economics work? Could this be sustainable for also the employees? Describe to me, Seth, your initial experience with Project Malawi and how over time it took to build the quality, grow the unit economics, and sustain a healthy work environment for your employees. Yeah, there's a lot to that question. Um, I'll answer it by, by just explaining a little bit of the journey so far. Um, because a lot of what you're asking um, was not a in a clear playbook or plan at all. As much as I would like to say it was, it was not. Um, and a lot of it was discovered as we built this company. Um, but a lot of the principles of why we exist really helped us develop in the right way. So at the beginning, uh, one of the, of course, biggest challenges was where do we do this that we can actually grow it? The orphanage was not a good place to actually build and scale this business. So we had to figure out where to do this. And uh, I did do a, a round of fundraising. I did a friends and family round just to get us operational. We wanted to have the operations set up so that when we started going to market, uh, we had the people there and we had them trained and ready to go so we could act quickly with clients. Um, but finding a place to do that was very difficult. Um, and the first place that we actually did was a private high school uh, in a rural area, about 45 minutes outside of the capital city. And it was a connection that one of my team members, uh, Cecilia Kondiwa, she's our VP operations, Cecilia is a very key member of our team. She's actually Malawian, born and raised, uh, moved to Canada when she was 25. And now she's been in Canada with her husband for over 25 years. Uh, incredibly strong leader in the business community, COO um, in another company. And so she joined us very early on. And uh, of course, because of the cultural context that she has on both sides, she's an incredibly critical part I'm sure. to what we're doing. And so... Uh, through some connections that she had, we settled at this high school where we were able to take two empty classrooms, uh, open air classrooms, quite an incredible thing, and set up about 20 computers there. And we trained the initial group of 15 high school graduates. Um, the combination of where this location was uh, and hiring high school grads allowed us to develop um, a very um, attractive unit economics early on. So we've had to build on that as time goes on, but the fact that we were able to start very low set us up well. Um, and so that was sort of the beginning, beginning of the unit economics. As far as 
the facility, it was good for a short time, about six months. And then we had to start thinking about, you know, as we got clients in Canada and we got new clients in US and then Europe, and some of these clients wanted to actually start coming to see the site and experience it. That's when we realized uh, we can't be in a school anymore. So that uh, led us to starting to rent our first space, which we've been in now for a few years called JAD Complex. Um, we moved into that space when it was about a year old. There's enough space there for us to employ about a thousand people, um, currently at about 130. And that uh, increased the cost of our operations. But again, since we started fairly low, um, we still were, were holding a very favorable um, cost uh, as compared to other global outsourcing markets. And uh, the move to the capital city also allowed us to learn something new, and that is the level of educated people that we actually had access to. And I mentioned learning, the number of educated people, university educated people actually coming out of the third poorest country in the world. So this is very interesting for us to learn. And it's, it's something I know for myself in the West, growing up in the West, I wasn't really aware of. Um, but as you learn more about a country like Malawi and you learn about the billions of dollars that have been invested through the aid industry, um, you see the amount of money invested in education. And those investments 20, 30 years later uh, are really coming to fruition now where you have the number of university educated people, IT degrees, business degrees, MBAs coming out of very well-respected universities, but nothing to do, no opportunity. And so by being in the capital city, this allowed us to, um, to attract a lot of that talent, um, which led us to actually being able to deliver more complex and higher value tasks to clients as well, which helped us, us develop. Um, so yeah, that's just a little bit about the, the unit economic side. I, I, I think there's another part of your question that I may have missed, but I'll stop no, there for now. No, you're good. And, and for those listening out there, um, you know, Malawi is the third poorest country in the world, just to give some context to where these operations are. Obviously, what Seth's talking about here is if any organization is trying going to hire labor, of course, they're going to want to check out the conditions they want, they want to know, can these people get the job done? There could be barriers such as English, right? Uh, if, if it's a country in Canada, United States, or even French. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of challenges, as I can imagine, Seth, with getting this off the ground. Um, but now looking back about was this now seven years later, um, we have a for-profit business model, a company that is giving opportunity, not just charity, Right. It's a company that's intentionally taking on a social or environmental problem as it grows the company. It solves those problems even even further. Talk a little bit about the impact, Seth, um, that uh, you've been able to experience in these employees' homes, in the economy. What are some of those, I guess, unanticipated or unexpected outcomes that you've seen over the seven years? Yeah, and just to clarify, four years, four years. Um, close, but yeah, four years. I'll I'll start with the uh, with an analogy that that we've used from the beginning that has 
really held true and it really helps to understand the role that we are playing when you when you start a business in a country like this you are exposed a lot to this aid industry and the way that that other countries and other groups of people have tried to quote help um and uh the analogy is this we've heard the first two parts many times um give a person a fish feed them for a day teach them to fish feed them for a lifetime the part that we added to it is but what if there's no lake to fish in and that explains a country like malawi and the level of edu educated people coming out of the country there's a lot of people being taught how to quote fish but if there's nowhere to fish it doesn't matter as far as actually impacting their lives and so for us bringing the access to global markets is is bringing the lake bringing the employment to them is bringing the lake um we've been just incredibly surprised at the level of talent and skill and ambition that is already there uh they don't need to be shown how to, how to do any of those things um but if if just if they can be connected to the place to quote fish uh that's where you see the impact start to happen so uh to your question how have we actually seen this impact i think the best way to to answer that question would just be to provide a couple stories um so i'll i'll share one story uh of one of our staff named salos Salos was one of our first employees of that original group of 15 from that high school that we set up in. He actually was a, high, a graduate of that high school. Salos has, a, has quite a common story for a Malawian family. Uh, grew up in poverty uh, with, I believe, five siblings, four or five siblings, um, one of those two. And a very common decision that parents in a family like that would have to make is uh, we have we will have enough resources to educate one of our children. So we now need to choose which child has the opportunity to get educated. You can imagine the weight that comes with that child as well if they're the only one that gets the opportunity to be educated. So Salos, uh, that's that's what Salos's story is. Um, and he's now been working with us for four years from the beginning. Uh, he's one of our team leads. He delivers unbelievable value. Every client that he has worked on has raved about the value that he brings to them, what it's like to work with him, his professionalism. And for him, uh, a few of the, the major transformative things that he's been able to experience all driven by him. Um, one, getting his own place to live. Um, two, having other family members, extended family members live with him. So giving other people a place to live. And then three, which I think is so fascinating and beautiful, is him actually able to subsidize the education of a couple of his siblings who didn't have that same opportunity that he had. And that gives you a really clear idea of the level of impact 
on upwards of like 15 different people because of Salos employment. And there's multiple other stories like that. Uh, Georgina would be another one that I, I would share also been one of our, uh, one of our employees from the, the original group of 15 and what she has often talked about as we've talked about her experience and interviewed her uh, is the confidence she has been able to build and to experience as a young woman uh, being able to have employment and generate income and support her family. Uh, the words she used were, this is very rare in my society and I'm proud to be able to do this. So you've got some of the hard elements like with Salos, being able to have a home, pay for education, support other family members. But just as importantly for me is the soft elements of confidence being built up in someone's life, which the long-term impact of that is huge. The pride in the work that they deliver and just the opportunity to be able to deliver that work, to be able to realize that pride. Uh, incredible. So I think Salos and Georgina's stories are probably the best ways to answer that question on the impact that's that's happening because of this employment. And, and so just out of curiosity, like, What's the difference between, you know, your, your previous organizations uh, in this new development in terms of uh, the productivity um, and how you think holistically uh, about the, the product or service that you're delivering? Are there any like key differentiation points, whether it's employee productivity, maybe it's uh, stakeholder capitalism, it's just something... Uh, for you that you're like, there's a clear difference about this operation as opposed to my traditional one. When you say my traditional one, do you, like Flip, Previous the last flip. company that I was yeah. involved in, <clears throat> got it. Oh, really great question. And I, I could talk about that in, in multiple ways. I think I'll I'll focus on market opportunity. So we've talked about the impact side, um, the employee impact. We talked about how the whole company was founded based on the purpose, right? The social purpose. This, this company was not founded on, we have an idea, a product idea, a service idea. Um, it was based on, we see an opportunity that employment can bring huge impact to these people's lives. Let's start the business around that. That has allowed us to keep an incredibly broad scope um, as to the type of work that we do. Uh, with Flip, it was very clear from the beginning, we were helping the, the retail industry hmm. transition their print advertising to digital. Mm -hmm. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And retailers needed a lot of help, both technology and reach to be able to get that marketing story that is their weekly circular into digital. That's a, that's a very clear uh, value proposition. It's a very clear ideal client profile, and it's a very small group of ideal clients. It's essentially about 150 retailers. And so there was never a question in my time 
running sales and BD at Flip of what exactly are we doing? Who are we going after? Um, we pivoted on on how we did it at times, but who we were going after never changed. Especially running sales, uh, there's a very clear playbook and structure that goes with um, when you know exactly who you're going after and exactly what you're delivering. Slide over to Tide Rise now. When your service is essentially workforce extension, where the sky is almost the limit as far as what you can do outside of um, very skilled tasks such as engineering or strategic work at like the executive level of companies. Um, the sky was our limit on, on what we did and how we did it. And because of that, our ideal client profile was not defined at the beginning. And mm. um, it's, it's set us up to uh, a have a lot of fun <laughs> because we've done a lot of different tasks with our staff in Malawi um, because we wanted to learn as quickly as possible what's going to work. Our whole purpose and function is to bring employment. But that doesn't mean that we know what's going to fit the best with the skill and the competency of our awesome Malawian team members. So that took a lot of trial and error. Um, and as much as I say it was fun, it also, uh, the ambiguity of it hmm. was extremely stressful <laughs> uh, because we wanted to be able to focus and get that ICP clear and get the value proposition clear, but we, we couldn't rush it. And that was a really interesting learning for myself and for us as a leadership team to, to be able to hold those two in balance of wanting to have clarity, but not rushing it so that we could actually go through all of these different experiences, successes, failures, processes to understand what's going to work. And so I'll bring this to a, a point. We are at the point four years in that we have clarity on, on the two uh, the two value propositions that make the most sense for us. And the one is workforce extension, ideally for startups and growth stage companies. Okay. When you look at that market right now, especially post-COVID, finding talent we all know this is extremely difficult and your options for scaling are quite limited. You can hire onshore, which I just mentioned is difficult and expensive. Um, that's always going to have to be a part of your growth though, is, is onshore. You could work with very large BPOs that have massive teams in say in India. That's become very expensive and the volume minimums are, are incredibly high. Then you've got a, a labor marketplace like Upwork, which is unbelievably valuable to our world, but poses challenges as far as the HR and admin overhead if you're trying to scale through hiring people on something like an Upwork. And so Tide Rise falls in this unique middle where 
you've got a North American management team that really understands startups and growth stage companies' journeys and scaling requirements. And then you've got this team in Malawi that really uh, can be plugged in cross-functionally. We have clients where we have Malawian team members plugged into sales with pre-sales and sales support, marketing, operations, definitely, finance. And so that is an incredibly exciting uh, part of our business that we will continue to focus on as the foundation of our business. We deeply integrate with our clients on that side of the business. It's not project-based. There's not a lot of turnover. Our Malawian team members become an extension of these clients' teams. They're integrated into their systems. They even start to get to know them, which is really cool for other reasons. So that's, that's the one side. The other side is the crazy world of AI right now. And the, and I've just learned about this over the last four years. I didn't have a view into this before. Uh, I didn't know the level of human effort that is behind the training of AI and ML models. Um, some people know that a lot of people don't, uh, but there are literally millions of people on this globe who are doing the, the human in the loop part of training AI and ML models. And so this is a very obvious one for us. If our whole purpose of existence is to uh, get people employed so that they can use that employment as a foundation to get out of poverty, um, being in AI training right now is critical. Uh, that part of the business looks very different. It's not as deeply integrated. It's much more transactional and project-based, but the volumes are astronomical as far as people. Uh, we have clients that were, that were in the process of, of onboarding right now who on the first call with us, they're asking the questions of how quickly could you scale to 100 people? How quickly could you scale to 300? How quickly to 1,000? Mm. How quickly to 2,000? They need to understand that we have the infrastructure, the people systems processes to be able to scale to that level because mm. that is their demand right now. So all of that to say, that kind of ambiguous <laughs> environment for the first four years of our existence uh, has been fascinating and very different than the clear uh, ICP and value proposition that we had at Flip. Right. And, and let's stick to strategy in terms of customer acquisition. Now you have a sales background. Uh, to you, like, what are the, the building blocks of a successful customer acquisition strategy? Obviously, it seems like you're starting with the ICP. In your experience, what's been working for you so far? And how are you turning those customers into raving fans? <clears throat> It's a really good question, and it's uh, it's a very unique part about our our story and our growth so far. And I think about this often, for especially for startups. Uh, I've also spent quite a bit of time over the last few years involved in some accelerators and mentoring startups and seeing what sales looks like at the beginning. And uh, our success so far has solely been one strategy. I'm currently at the point now because we just hired our first person to help me on the sales and business development side and to help us move transition into 
operationalizing our sales and creating much more of that uh, repeatable sales machine that you need to have when you're scaling. But in our startup phase, all of our growth came from my network. And it's something that I, I hope I could talk about more with companies in the future is if you've been someone who has, has come out of another company like I did with Flip, and you've, been, you've had the opportunity to build a network like I did at Flip, both with my, my uh, colleagues and all the people that I hired, but then also the people that I worked with and all the retailers that were our clients. Uh, for four years, I have looked no further. I've done a little bit of direct selling, a little bit of cold calling here and there, which I have had success in with my past. But you know, when you're founder-led sales at the beginning of your existence, you are just naturally going to look what is going to work the best and the fastest. And that was my network. And connecting with people as much as I could Thankfully, I didn't burn many bridges because <laughs> that would make that strategy a lot harder. Um, and uh, almost all of our first probably 25 clients in four different countries came from my network. And so incredibly thankful for that network. Um, and it made the, the process incredibly collaborative because trust was high from the first phone call of connecting with these people. Uh, and they loved the idea of what we were doing first off. And they loved the idea of being able to do it with Seth again. Right. Um, and so I, I would just sort of mention that as a side learning of if, if you're in a startup and trying to figure out the sales side, if you've got a network, Oh man, look no further for the first, for the first part, because then that at least gives you the foundation so that when the business is set up and you've got a client foundation, you've got a revenue foundation, you're hopefully profitable, then you've got the bit of breathing room to say, how do we operationalize this? And so now I'm in the point of uh, operationalizing our sales and looking at a combination of what I call a, a TR champion strategy, which is I have this group of people, again, all in my network who love what we're doing and they're incredibly well connected and they're making instructions for me in all their respective industries. And uh, they love doing it. So that's the TR champion part. Next part, I call the network effect, getting involved in, in business networks, accelerators, um, different things like that. And I mean, in different countries as well, uh, because if you can be a part of a, 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 an accelerator uh, providing coaching, or you're a part of a business network, um, providing value to the members of that network, well, it's just inevitable that people are going to say, oh man, we also, we really enjoy working with Seth and we see the value he brings. Um, but Tide Rise is also very interesting to us to help our businesses. And then the third one, as far as our, our BD strategy goes, would be the direct sales part and building, um, building the, the systems and processes around uh, what it looks like to get scale with our, our sales efforts. Um, that's an interesting one to figure out in this day and age and looks very different than what I've been used to over the last decade. So that's fun to, to try to figure out. Well, thanks for sharing Seth. And it, it's always uh, interesting to hear, you know, early stage founders going straight to their networks first, 
um, you know, still relying on that personal relationship, those personal referrals uh, to get them to that next level before they take off for the commercialization. Um, I'm curious now in terms of leadership, Seth, um, and growing your organization, what are like some of those key leadership lessons you've learned, whether it's the hard way or just natural over time and progression that it takes in order to grow a business. So what are those key lessons, key leadership qualities it takes to grow uh, an organization like yours? I'll, I'll touch on two to start, and I think some others might might uh, pop up as well. Um, one has held true from my time at Flip, and that is especially for the CEO, but really for all leaders, is the clarity of the mission. And the over communication, almost at nausea, <laughs> of that mission to everyone involved, uh, all stakeholders, employees, shareholders, clients, um, at some point, PR. Uh, there's so many different reasons why I say that is important, but. Uh, one of the single biggest reasons is just to have a team that is consistently aligned and on mission. And the the value to the business, if you have a team that is aligned and on mission, you can't even articulate. Um, it's just, in my opinion, absolutely necessary to build a strong, sustainable company that you can scale. There's a host of other things that are also required to be able to have a strong, sustainable company that you can scale. But I would venture to say that uh, first and foremost, you need an aligned team who is on mission and, and has clarity on that mission. So I think that is is one. A little bit more at the the personal level is humility would be the first word I would say, but humility can, can be uh, taken in so many different ways, interestingly enough. So to be more specific, um, an incredible level of self-awareness as a leader and a continuous uh, desire, thirst to understand oneself uh and then in in parallel with that an openness in sharing that self-awareness i my co-founder brad workington and i are incredibly different people <laughs> with vastly different backgrounds and skill sets and competencies and approaches to the world and perspectives. And without 
self-awareness and a desire to continually learn about who you are, uh, it makes, you know, working in partnership with someone so difficult. And I'm just talking about the two of us, let alone as you scale, having a, a larger leadership team and leading other people and leading teams. But that would be one of the biggest lessons that I've learned and that I, I wish I, I had learned earlier, but at the same time, you know, scraping my knees as many times as I did without the self-awareness helped me get to that point of getting self-awareness. So it, it's all a part of the package. So I'm thankful for it all. But that has been by far one of the most important learnings for me is to just constantly be on this journey of learning who I am why I operate the way I do and how that impacts the people around me. Uh, and if I can be open on that journey, uh, man, it is better for me and everybody around me. So yeah, I think those would be the two things that I would, I would highlight. Yeah. I like that. It's, it's pretty profound. You know, that the destination is the journey itself and being open mm -hmm. throughout the whole time, being in a mindset of gratitude, a mindset of consistently learning uh, can help you uh, sustain the, the momentum. Seth, it's been a pleasure having you on this show and this program here today. Let's bring this home and all of this. What is your definition of a real leader? Yeah, I think I'd I'd have to uh be a little a little repetitive here, but um I would say a real leader is is someone who has clarity on their vision. They have, I would say clarity and passion on their vision and their purpose. They have the ability to communicate it well, to get people on board and to get people excited about it. But then the critical foundation to underpin that would be the self-awareness and the ability, the desire and the ability to take the steps to understand themselves, improve, and be open with sharing what that looks like to the people around them so that as a team, you are that much better because of your own personal self-awareness. That would be my definition, Kevin. I love that. For Seth Stover, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, clarify the vision, know thyself, and always keep it real. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Kevin.